All right, guys, today we are going to do something a little bit special. Alex Conti had asked me via uh, text message after a couple of the last Sunday chats, and he said we had sort of started to get into some of my background, but not really maybe deep enough for what uh, what people needed to know or wanted to know. And so he asked me if he could come on and ask me some questions and interview me. So we're going to do this as a Wednesday uh, chat and because uh, we did it last night. And I'll interrupt my week. And in place of me giving you guys something uh, mental to work with, hopefully my background and shedding a little bit of light on my journey and stuff can help you guys um, in some capacity. I'm not sure what that'll be different for different people, I hope. Uh, at the very least, you guys will maybe get to know me a little bit better. And I hope that you guys enjoy. And more than anything, I hope that you guys enjoy the season three new music coming at you. Here we go. Today we are here with Alex Conti, and he has uh, had a request, and he wanted to kind of flip the script a little bit, and we're going to do our Sunday chat today a little bit with me as the guest interview, and he's going to kind of ask the questions, be the MC, and be the guy who kind of uh, runs this thing, and I'm going to sit back and do my best to be the interviewee. Uh, so Alex, why don't you introduce yourself for maybe people who don't know you? and uh, kind of tell them how long we've known each other and that kind of stuff. All right. Uh, like Jeff said, my name is Alex Conti, and I've been a member of Friendship now for about three and a half years. Yep. Uh, joined back in the spring of 2015. Yep. And I think it was just a few months after Chris and John Sandsbury had joined. Yep. Uh, we had all gone to uh, CrossFit Olentangy, New Albany, and uh, I think I did a couple workouts with you guys prior to actually joining. Uh, yep. It was like some skull sessions or something. Yeah. And uh, John and Chris made the jump, and then you know a couple months later, they're like, Bubba. hey. Uh, a couple months later, they said, hey, you gotta check this place out. It's pretty great. So uh, I made the jump myself, and the rest is history in regards to uh, to FCF and, and joining the crew over there. The rest is history. So why don't we dive into what the rest the is rest. history means? So. Yes. Um, so not only, you know, friendships and, uh, and that kind of stuff, but you have now met your fiance. Yes. My future wife, uh, Kristen Lebsack. Um, now she's been a member for what, six years now? Yeah, she's been a long time. Yep. Um, so we, uh, that's where, you know, obviously met her at friendship. Um, and it was, uh, it was an interesting thing and, you know, she'll tell people all the time that, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, too quick to make any moves uh, <laughs> in that relationship but uh you know we uh it was so funny because uh sarah whaley yeah uh used to say uh what do you think about uh what do you think about Kristen? yeah in her little and, sarah whaley kind right, of way right, yeah, yeah her, her right, i'm always like, shuffling the cards right she's like uh she's like the spider from game of thrones just shuffling she her little cards yeah. and yeah. Playing around, yeah, yeah. yeah. just uh, <laughs> kind of working behind the scenes, yep. trying to make everything come together. Yep. 
And it was the fall, I think, of, it must have been the fall of 2015. Um, you had set up a bunch of us to do some local comps. Yeah. And it ended up being uh, Chris and Jenny, and then Kristen and myself, and we went down to New Cove. Yeah. Down in uh, Kentucky. Right? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, the, the infamous so, Will picture. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I forgot so, about that. So we, we went down there, and... That was kind of uh, as this was all developing, right? And I wasn't entirely sure because I felt like we were very different personalities and yeah. all that. And um, and after the competition, I just remember like, well, like our competitive, like the way I approach competition is way different. Like, yeah. I, like I don't know if it's going to work. And, <laughs> yeah. And uh, you guys still haven't quite figured that out no, all the way. I don't no, feel like. we. Uh, <laughs> what was it? I think it was. Uh, it was the unknowns earlier unknowns? this year? Yeah, yeah something. Yeah. Yeah. We tried to do the unknowns as a team of uh, two, and did not work out too well. <laughs> we uh, we quickly realized yeah, that you were just there to represent some heroes right. on a holiday and right. have some fun, and right. she was not on that same page. No, no, she wasn't. Uh, <laughs> she kind of looked at me a few times, and she's like, "Let's fucking go!" Like, you know, it's just like. I'm just like I'm just here to work out and yeah. you know honor and salute and, you know, and, just, and she's like no we gotta beat them next time just burial like, just just like, like, meanwhile like I didn't warm up well enough or anything and like my back's blowing up I'm like oh god I'm miserable right now and uh, yeah so that was interesting and uh, but but long story short uh, proposed to her this past 4th of July and uh, set to get married July 5th of next year so awesome. we're yeah. looking forward to that and, and going through all the uh, all the fun stuff in regards to planning a wedding so. yeah for sure yeah and you guys are I just saw the puppy you guys were fostering for a little while just got adopted yesterday yes how many have how many dogs have you guys fostered now that have been adopted that was number 13 Jeez. this year yeah so we we first started fostering uh, I think it was late January early February this year yeah uh, through Cause for Canines, and, you know, we loved it, and we kept going, and, and Izzy was uh, our our 13th foster that finally got adopted yeah. this past Sunday. That's so cool. So she was, uh, yeah, she was an interesting case. Uh, we predominantly had done only puppies um, that were, you know, six to eight weeks old. Uh, Izzy was actually an owner surrender okay. and was technically Lola's litter mate. Oh, wow, really? So our oldest, our, uh, oldest dog, Lola, is a little over a year and a half now. Yeah. Um, so Izzy was an owner surrender, and you know we don't know too much of the details. But long story short, found out very quickly that she had fear aggression. Yeah. Uh, very little socialization training. Yep. Um, so did not get along with her dogs uh, very well. So it was this um, challenging. We've had her for four months, so it was a very challenging four months where we had to balance uh, making sure that we spent enough time with her and training her so that she developed some of those skills Better and skills, would be yeah. more adoptable yeah uh, so to speak great dog um you know we we never had any hostility directed towards ourselves yeah but it was just the the uncertainty of other dogs i think yeah uh, that she really struggled with so she was adopted by a young couple this past weekend who uh they actually work opposite schedules she works at night as a news producer and then nice. he's an attorney at honda during the day cool. so someone to be there with her that'll yeah, work uh, out most better. of the day nice. so yeah. yeah yeah that's awesome that's always cool when you feel like they are able to go into a place that'll be able to take care of their needs no other dogs I assume or anything like that no yeah. no that's the only one so it'll be good uh, good for her to kind of have uh, someone around there 24-7 yeah and, and be able to continue on with uh, 
with training and, and giving her what she needs to have. Yeah, so. it's awesome. It's been really cool to see you guys kind of um, really find a, a passion and a niche for that over this past year. Um, yeah. So that's been cool. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, same thing. You guys you guys been traveling, taking some hikes and doing that. Is that where you proposed? Uh, no, uh, proposed at Garden of, uh, or the, um, Garden, or, uh, Rose Garden, um, Garden of Roses. Okay. Uh, over off of, or in Glenville. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, yeah, it was scenic. Oh, uh, Parker Roses, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's it escaping me for a minute. Parker Roses, yeah. Uh, crazy story regarding that. So, I bought the ring, and I was kind of trying to figure out, like, the, the right moment. Yeah. Um, she was kind of, we, we kind of... She knew it was coming, and we had kind of planned for it to happen in the spring of this year. Yeah. Um, Tom kept going away, and she continually reminds me that I drag my feet on some things, and this <laughs> is one thing that she accuses me of dragging my feet on. But um, uh, we had a scheduled trip planned to Colorado. Like you said, you know, we've been we've been traveling recently. We went to Colorado early August. So in my mind, I'm like, you know, this would be really cool, beautiful scenery. Yeah. Uh, several of her siblings are photographers, uh, like professional photographers. Yeah. Um, you know, all of her siblings will be there. Her dad will be there. Her grandma will be there. Like that'd be really special, I think, yeah. uh, to be to be in that environment. Um, and then she kind of like offhandedly said, I really hope you're not waiting until Colorado. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, all right. So I got to figure something out here. Um, yeah. so I texted her sister, Katie, and, uh, she helped me get, uh, get the logistics figured out. We went over to Parker Roses and, <laughs> and, uh, what's his viciously, uh, um, and we ended up going to Parker Rose. It was so funny because um, I wanted it to be a surprise, obviously. Yeah. And I also knew that she wanted the moment to be captured on, on a picture. So yeah. uh, I had talked to her sister Katie and her husband Bobby, and they were willing to be there to take photographs and, and video it and everything yeah. like that. And so um, throwing plans together, trying to get everything coordinated, and we go to this uh, kind of the middle of the park where this big fountain is. And Katie and Bobby get there early, and she's texting me like, "Hey, the you know the light's really good in this direction. Yeah. Like when you go when you walk up, make sure you go to the <laughs> left. Like there's this bench, that stone bench that has like a, an author's name on it or something like that. Make sure you go stand by that one. Make it so even super, more stressful. Right, yeah. right. So super specific. And um, <laughs> I'll never forget because we were going to North Star that morning. And um, I was just like, you know, let's let's stop at uh, Parker Roses because uh, your sister-in-law Lindsay said it'd be a good place to take the dogs for a walk. Yeah. Check it out and see if it's it's cool. So she's kind of like, I don't know, okay. Yeah. So we end up going there and we're walking through and there happens to be some sort of like July Fourth like five k going on. <laughs> and like I'm expecting it not to be very crowded or anything. They have this huge like, pancake breakfast and fried. <laughs> I'm just like. Crap. I'm like, this is like turning into the disaster. Oh, well, get some pancakes, now, whatever. And literally as we're walking out of the car, I'm getting text messages from her sister, Katie. Hey, forget the first spot. Go to this spot. Go to this spot. And like, Jeez, so I'm kind of like looking at my phone, looking at the map without Kristen seeing that yeah. her sister is texting me. Or yeah. She's like, what are you looking at? I'm just like, oh, just a map of the park. Yeah. Know, just trying to figure out our bearings. And at this point, you're probably being so like out of normal right. like, style right. that like you've got no at, chance to pull this right, off. Right, right. Yeah. At that point, she probably knew something was was up. Um, and uh, <laughs> and I had uh, like these shorts on, just regular pair of like, uh, dress shorts or whatever, and had the ring in the box. And it was like, 
in the pocket, obviously, but it had this huge bulge. Yeah. So I had like my one hand in my pocket to make <laughs> it look like it wasn't this awkward bulge and like on my left leg yeah. as we're walking. So I have my hand in my pocket, I have my phone in my other hand. And I'm just like I'm like, this is just a massive yeah. failure at this yeah. point. And uh, we're walking up to the fountain and the last minute text message, she's like, No, go back to the original spot. So I end up making this like huge circle around the fountain and at yeah. this point Kristen's like, Okay, seriously yeah. what's going on? Yeah. Um but uh, but got it done. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Here we are. So yeah, I was gonna are. say, and you're uh, about what six three, so about nine months, eight or nine months. Yeah. 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 Awesome. We'll be here before we know it, I'm sure. So. I love it. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Well. All right. Dive in. All right. You do you. Do you. Ask Jeff away. Um, you know, as Jeff had mentioned earlier, and. I'm a huge fan of podcasts, and I thought it'd be cool to kind of flip it around a little bit and get a little bit of history and, and backstory from uh, Mr. Jeffrey Binnick. Yeah, I'm sure there's some on people this, on here uh, who don't know who listens. Right, so. right. Yeah. So um, I kind of wanted to start with high school. Okay. And you went to Worthington Gilmore. Yep. What sports did you play? Yeah, so I when I joined as a freshman, um, I was severely undersized. A lot of people don't realize, like, I was, like – five foot two, maybe 115 pounds as a freshman. Um, so I had come in, I had played quarterback in seventh, eighth grade on, uh, at McCord. And so I played football and then basketball and lacrosse, uh, going into high school though, obviously high school football takes on a little bit more of a beast. So I was looking at a, a long summer and, um, you know, all the other kids who played quarterback from both schools had kind of passed me in size and stuff. And uh, honestly, like, my heart wasn't really there in football the way that, like, at the time, Kilbourne was, like, a big football powerhouse. And I really wasn't, like, into it too much. So I started looking into some other sports, and I started picking up golf, which is, like, one of my dad's huge passions. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I actually went out that year, the freshman, my freshman year for the freshman golf team, which is how I met Grant, who's co-owner of the gym. And so, uh, you know, you kind of have a feel in the golf world of, like, where you sit. It's a very, like, hierarchical, you know, you're, you're either good or you're bad. Um, and I was not very good, but I enjoyed playing golf. I enjoyed being outside. And, yeah. uh, and so we went out for tryouts. We kind of knew the other kids who were trying out. And then all of a sudden there's this phenom who's a freshman apparently and uh, if you guys don't know Grant was like the opposite Grant was like fully grown in eighth grade and so he's like he's like taller than all of us and you start seeing this kid well he goes out and he shoots like par like in all the all the tryouts now he'll remember every round I'm sure he'll tell me he didn't actually shoot par Um, but uh, he goes out and he makes makes like he's like second man in varsity and we're all like who the hell is this guy So, you know, you're, you're merging middle schools, and so uh, we ended up being in every single class together uh, that year, that freshman year. Uh, so me, Grant, and Nate Kyler, who was one of my good friends in, in high school also. And so um, that was how I met him. So the tryouts happened in summer before school actually starts, and so I had met him, and it was cool. We had class together every year, and, uh, and we've been really good friends ever since. And so, uh, so that was kind of cool. That was how I met him. And then uh, went out for the basketball team, and both Jay and I got cut for being too short. So we both played point guard. Um, we were both pretty talented basketball players, um, but very vertically challenged and very classic point guards, like John Stockton types. So, um, you know, I was not a phenomenal shooter, um, you know, but I was, I was mainly a facilitator. And uh, they had just had a new basketball coach come on that year, and, you know, didn't like my style and so 
um, cut Jay and I from the team, and then uh, him and I went and played uh, intramurals together that year. And so I had known Jay from basketball camps and other things before a little bit, but then that was how kind of how we became friends. So it's kind of cool to see that the, the freshman year sports happenings yeah. were really the foundation sort of of, of friendship, um, you know, starting it with Jay and, and Tom, or Jay and Grant and Tom. And, uh, you know, I met Tom through Jay in college. Okay. So, uh, and then I played uh, played lacrosse, um, and lacrosse is the one I stuck with. I played intramural basketball every year. Our intramural basketball was really cool in our school because everybody in our grade by our senior year, outside of one person, ended up not stopping playing basketball. They all dropped off playing basketball. And so then our intramural was like, super competitive so I mean we would have two games a week no practices which is awesome and they'd be like double header games and all the best basketball players really in the school or all the best athletes in the school played so it was pretty cool yeah. uh, so I enjoyed that I played golf my um, freshman sophomore and junior year and then um, played uh, lacrosse freshman sophomore junior year and then senior year um, just played intramural basketball, didn't play any other sports. At that point, I was like, I was one of those kids who probably should have graduated early. Okay. Sorry. We'll let the blonde mower. We're getting the trifecta of, of noise here uh, for our uh, PM podcast today. Um, you know, I was, I was pretty checked out my senior year of high school. Um, both Grant and I had a pretty hardcore case of senioritis. We were not um, probably being challenged enough by high school. Like, we were both kind of ready to be on. Um, you know, we were taking some AP classes. I took some AP classes my junior year, and um, honestly, I was just kind of, you know, checked out intellectually. So I did actually really poorly my senior year of high school um, academically, and probably a big part of that too was um, was not playing as many sports, kind of dropping some of that structure. Right. Right. So. Okay. Um, so yeah. Um, so that was kind of high school. So that was kind of my sports career. Um, very mediocre. Uh, never took the weight room seriously. Yeah. Never got into any kind of training regimen. Um, How big were you a senior year? Going from freshman to senior year? Yeah, so I grew up, but I didn't grow out. Um, so I grew uh, to about probably six foot one, uh, six foot two. Uh, but I think I graduated around 140 pounds. Um, so yeah, I wow. was, uh, I was skin and bones. There's kind of a famous picture that rolls around Facebook every now and again of, of me, uh, senior year spring break. And I look, I mean, I look like a skeleton. I was super, super scrawny. And so I actually joined the army a year and a half later at 148. Um, so that was when I was uh, 19. And so, uh, so yeah, I never, uh, really just bad eating habits. Um, never, Never took to the gym, never took to lifting weights, um, you know, didn't have an appreciation for that from a training value standpoint for sports and stuff back then. Um, and then, yeah, just a late bloomer in terms of filling out-wise. Like, right. I did fill out eventually, um, you know, probably my second year in the Army um, or so, right around the time I was finishing up airborne school. Okay. Um, that was, like, the first time my mom had seen me since I had joined and I had turned 20. And, um, and then I started to get a little bit thicker right so that kind of happened pretty quick so at what point did you think about the military while you're in high school or what at what point did you say this is what I want to do because I think probably most people know that you know you're a guard at the Tomb of the Unknowns yeah but I would say that probably a lot of people don't know how how that thought came into your head yeah yeah actually I mean um so so yeah so finished um you know finished high school I had a pretty serious girlfriend at the time um we'd been dating 
um, I don't know, a year and a half, two years at the time. And uh, so I started to look at schools and, you know, probably what would have been best for me at the time would have been to really get away, to go to like a West Coast school. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, as young love will do, um, you know, I stayed close and I went to OU. And uh, the, the OU thing really never stuck for me. Um, you know, I'd, uh, I went there for uh, two semesters and, you know, honestly, I was coming home a lot during the weekends and... You know, as that stuff happened, she was still a senior uh, at, in high school, so she was a grade below me, and, uh, you know, that just never never really materialized. I never dove into the friends all the way at OU. I never dove into the social life there. I always kind of had one foot in both ponds, and uh, and then, like I said, I was pretty checked out from an academic standpoint um, at that point, so uh, grades were terrible. I kind of laugh about them now. I show Maria and, you know, it's, it's fun to be able to look back and laugh on that. But, you know, at the time it was, it's kind of crazy. And I'm sure it was a roller coaster for my parents because it's like, you know, in high school you go from like junior year, sophomore year, like four point student every time. Um, you know, and then senior year you start to see it slide and not doing as well, you know, taking like taking F's in non-required classes basically, and then you go into, uh, you know, you get your first report card back from OU, and I think I had like a 1.2, um, so it was pretty bad. So I went right on to academic probation. I started going back spring semester, and uh, and then really just honestly, um, you know, I was I was struggling with the decision, struggling with the relationship. I was I was pretty unhappy, um, you know, unhappy with school, unhappy with the future, um, and so. I ended up just leaving school and uh, and coming back and moving home and started at um, at Columbus State Online and basically I think I lasted I lasted maybe two weeks doing that yeah. I was like at that point it was pretty clear to me that like I needed a complete 180 like life lifestyle change um, and so for those people who knew me, you know, junior, senior year of high school, I think, uh, the military, like I, it shocked people that I went into the military is nothing that I ever talked about. Um, you know, like I said, I was pretty undersized. Um, you know, it wasn't something that inside of Columbus and local Columbus communities, it's not, um, you know, it's not a huge military town. And so it's just not something that a lot of people do. I think there were maybe, three or four other guys from my high school class that ended up going out of a class of 500 people. Right. So pretty low percentages. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, honestly just where I was at, um, and what motivated me and that kind of stuff. Like I just, I wasn't getting it from school. I had started to work some other jobs and I didn't really like other jobs, you know, and you kind of learn real quickly. Like if you don't have an education, like you're probably not going to be able to do something that you really enjoy too much. <laughs> Um, and you know, socially I, you know, I was, wasn't, you know, doing great in my relationship and I wasn't making new friends and you know, it's the same thing. It's kind of a tough point when you're at that point because all your friends are off in college and they're all doing their thing over there. Um, you know, and then if you're going to go into the workforce and stuff, you're 18, 19. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I started looking at the military and, um, you know, I don't, Pat Tillman at the time was, um, you know, a huge influence for me. He had just passed away. Um, and so, um, I pretty much read everything there was to read on him. And, you know, that had been something that really motivated me. And, and so, you know, I looked into his path and so that was the contract I signed on for. It was called an 11 X contract. I think they still have it. Um, puts you straight into Ranger battalion. So you go straight through, it's uh, almost a full, full year or so of training. Um, you go, basic training, airborne school, ranger indoctrination program, 
Um, you go to Ranger Bat for a few months, and then you go to to Ranger School if you're if you're doing well. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the path, and it's kind of a there are a lot of guys in my unit. So the basic training unit you go with then is all the people who signed up for Special Forces contracts. So I went into the recruiter and uh, and I think signed up that day. And wow. so I mean I was. Did you talk to your parents at all? Or? Nope. Okay. <laughs> and went home, told them, and told them I was leaving in three weeks. Um, so it was, a, it was a quick turnaround. What was their reaction? Um, shock at first, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom, I think, took it a lot harder than my dad, especially when she found out, like, what I was going to be doing. Because you have to remember, this is 2004. Right. This is right at the heart of, you know, the insurgency and, right. um, you know, really diving into Afghanistan more so than Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and so probably the, the heart of, you know, KIAs at the time for, right. for that conflict. And so once she kind of looked into that stuff more, I think she, she got really nervous, um, you know, but for me at the time it was, you know, especially in hindsight being 2020, um, you look back and it, it was the best thing for me. Um, it was what I needed. And so it's been cool to see because, um, you know, we don't have a lot of, we don't have any other military um, in my generation of our family. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think it really, it brought us closer together, me and my parents, and uh, it really increased their sense of pride for, you know, service for the military. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think it, uh, we all, we all, I think, came out of it, you know, feeling significantly better than going into it. Sure. But, you know, I tell young people all the time, uh, it's, it's, it really can be what the military is for. It's a great second chance opportunity for a lot of people. And I speak with so many kids now that are 17, 18, 19, that are just, they're, they're totally lost. Um, and everybody's sitting there telling you, you have to go to college and, or you're going to be a bum or whatever it is, especially in, Dublin, Olentangy, Worthington, it's just what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And it can really quickly start to feel like you have no other options. And um, and so that was my other option. And I would highly recommend that to other people just for, for everything it did so much, um, you know, for me. So, so yeah, so then left for basic training. Um, and I'm one of the very few people who you'll ever meet who I went to infantry basic training in July in Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, which is notoriously like hell on earth yeah. in terms of heat and heat index and okay. humidity. And, uh, they put you out there and I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, hell hole. Um, but I loved it. Yeah. It was, it was everything that I wanted and I didn't know what I wanted. Right. right. Um, did you feel like it replaced the structure that you had lost after maybe not doing sports anymore? And yeah. Yeah. It was. And I think that was a big part of it. You know, I, I needed to get away from cell phones. I needed to get away from my friend group. I needed to get away from myself, I guess. The, the lifestyle, that the path, you know, where I was going with that stuff. Like, I just, I needed to separate. And what I loved about it is you just never had time to feel sorry for yourself. You know, it was so, you know, you're just trying to make it to the next meal. And that's that's really what basic training came down to for me. And that mentality has been something that has stuck with me now for, um, you know, 12 years, 15 years, um, mm-hmm. is make it to the next meal. And no, no matter how hard or how much they're going to try to grind you down, how much mentally they're going to try to exhaust you, how exhausted you are physically, emotionally, and all that stuff, they're going to try to break you, but they have to feed you, mm-hmm. right? And right. so it's like, and if you know that, 
that's a huge mental edge that you can have over them. Yeah. Like they're not going to let you die. They have to feed you. Mm-hmm. So I just got to make it to the next meal. Right. And having that mentality has been something that I've really enjoyed. And I, I get there every now and again, you know, the, the business is so much better, you know, now as than it was early in terms of, you know, my grinding workload. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when you're, when you're first starting off and you have a couple tough months and you know, you're, home at 11 and up at four and, and doing that, it's like, you know, but you, if you believe in it, then you still, you can just get yourself in that same mentality. Like I just got to get, got to get to tomorrow. I got to get to the next meal. Just take it one meal at a time mm-hmm. and don't focus on all this other crap that tries to get in your way. Right. And I love that about basic training. Um, I loved being pushed. That was when I really found that mm-hmm. I found that high school was, um, didn't challenge me in a way that I found stimulating. Um, mentally, physically, or both? Definitely physically, yeah. um, but mentally for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's the big thing is is I just got complacent, and and that was not good for me. And so I loved being being challenged. I love ri- feeling like you had the opportunity to rise to the occasion, right? So that was something that I really enjoyed and that was the first real taste of that, a real challenge. Um, you know, you get it in, in doses, um, during basic training. And so, um, you know, both mentally and physically and combined together. And so I loved that feeling of having these really difficult tasks or seemingly endless nights, um, low sleep, physical exhaustion, but then overcoming that. And then, you know, feeling like four hours of sleep is like, the greatest gift ever. Right. And mm-hmm. cause you're just so physically and mentally exhausted. You just don't think about anything. Your mind doesn't race. It just, it's like you're just purely exhausted and all you have to take on is whatever the task they give you next is. Yeah. So I enjoyed that aspect a lot and it, it taught me a lot about myself. Um, I wrote letters to people. I got letters. It was very, I loved that. You know, I, th- I don't think basic training is that anymore. Even for infantry soldiers, I think that they have, some cell phone access. I think they have some computer access, some of those different things. But for me, that was a huge part of it was like, get back old school, like write in a journal, write letters to people, get mail back, like have that waiting in between period, you know, that you're, um, that you just don't have that immediate response. Right. So they uh, took away cell phones, computers. Yep. So you had, what, access to a landline maybe every so often or what? You literally, I mean, it's like prison <laughs> movies. You stood in a line for a payphone once every other Sunday, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, you had a calling card and, mm-hmm. you know, you'd, you'd call home and tell your mom and dad you're not dead. And I mean, that was it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they were really good. My mom was really good about writing to me and, um, you know, I got pretty consistent mail and, and that was, I mean, that was it. It was, but, it, but I loved it. It was so simple. You know, right. it was, it was, it was just easy and simple. You had one task you were focused on and none of that other noise really got in the way. Um, and it's like crazy to think back, but you just sit there and you don't ever think about like, we've got all this shit. Like you've got bills. You have to worry about what you're going to eat for dinner tonight. Like you have shit right now. I have shit right now that I need to go and figure out and answer and none of that is there. Like, you don't have any of that. There's no choice anywhere. So you're just never stressed or bombarded with these decisions. It's right. like, I don't have a choice for dinner. I'm going to go stand in line and what they put on my tray, I have to eat, right? And I'm going to want to eat it, even if it's literally like 
deep fried veal. Not an exaggeration, that's what they feed you a lot. Deep fried veal and uh, and appetizing. Yeah, right. And saltines. I'm like, that's your dinner. But you you have no idea, like you're gonna shovel it so hard and just be so thankful because you're so exhausted and hungry all the time. Right. And so I like that simplicity. That was like peaceful to me. Um, so I think it's, it's always interesting when people talk about how hard basic training was to me, it was, it was a peaceful experience. It was, mm. it was simple and I enjoyed that. Um, so, um, you know, it allows you to really think about a lot more about like who you are and your discipline structure and work on your inner voice. Right. That was what I enjoyed about it is that really helped me with my own discipline structure, my own inner voice, how I talk to myself. Right. You know, something that, um, Kristen has taught me from being in a relationship with her, um, and I especially think after her mom passed away was the importance of telling people how you really feel and writing notes yeah especially in cards yep and the way that i grew up was you know you get birthday cards at the store or whatever and they have their own pre-printed messages or whatever and you sign your name and that's it yeah um but i remember when i did that it's one of my family members birthday i can remember she thought it it was like the worst thing in the world yeah she's like no you can't do that yeah and isn't that interesting there are families that do one or the other right and um so i've I've started to try and take more thought into what i say and in cards and notes to to people or whatever um and something that i observed with you in particular um and i believe it was your birthday maybe two or three it was probably two years ago um that you really took the time to read the card and you seemed genuinely very appreciative of the words that were on that card yeah and i don't know what was on the card yeah um do you think that's from from back in basic when you come to appreciate the things like that where those handwritten notes and the mail that you received do you think that's just carried on i definitely there's nothing in the world that i that carries more meaning with me than somebody taking the time to sit down and and handwrite their feelings Mm -hmm. um towards towards anything towards towards a person and it, it could even be a negative thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll never forget years ago we had a member cancel and they wrote me a handwritten note. Um, and it had some negative things about the gym, but it was also, it, it also expressed the positive, right. you know? And that was something to me that was the most, it'll stick with me forever probably as the most meaningful cancellation that we've ever had. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll remember it forever. And it was, it was just, because it, it took the time to care. Like right. I, I, you need feedback on, on the gym. Um, you need feedback. Everybody, people change. Everybody's going to make, make decisions for what's best for them at the time. I'm making what's the best decision for me at the time. And everybody is, uh, along the way. And, um, but for somebody to take the time to help me know and improve the gym experience for people in the future, Um, but also taking the time to say like, you know, it's not, you know, what I need right now, but in the past it was something, you know, that, that was great for me that, that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And it was somebody who had battled with, you know, depression and all these things. And it was just, it was very heartfelt and they'd gotten over that stuff and they'd moved on from it. And so now they didn't need the social aspect and they needed more time to spend with, you know, their family and their new baby and Mm -hmm. some other things. And so, uh, so I think sometimes that kind of stuff, it's, 
any time that somebody takes a notable time out of their day to do that, because I wrote people in basic who never wrote me back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I've probably had multiple people over the years who I wish I would have written more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's always the thing that you look back on is when somebody actually really takes the time to sit down and do that, take right. that practice and be honest and give you their feelings and their gratitude and their appreciation. That is the longest form way to do that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can walk by and passing and tell someone, Hey, thanks for this. Right. You can shoot them a text message. Hey, I really appreciated that. You can shoot them an email. You can um, not do anything, right? You could get them a, a gift. You could get them a card that's just stock, right? right? All that stuff is more convenient and it's simpler than the longer form of taking the time to sit down and handwrite something. And so I think that that's something um, I definitely regained a new appreciation for that. And I have it right over here. Um, you know, my mom, one of my mom's um, gifts when I got down to the tomb was giving me um, my own stationery. Um, and so um, she got me a really nice gift, uh, you know, says my name on it and, and you know, full of, um, you know, cards and, and envelopes and it's all matching. And I thought that that was really cool and I'm, I'm almost out of them, but I thought it was like, I thought that was a really cool, cool gesture, um, for me to continue to express that habit. Um, so, uh, and it's hard and, you know, I'm busier now than I've ever been. And I've probably, uh, that's like my whole life challenge goal. And that's stuff that I'm trying to work on more is just writing more, right? The, 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 I'm trying to think about it as stamps used, right? Yeah. Like how many, how many stamps can I use <laughs> right. this month, right? Um, and so it's easy to track in that capacity, right? Yeah. If I have to buy two books of stamps, it means I sent out, you know, 48 cards this month. That's and right. so that's, you know, that's the goal that you're tracking for. So Do you journal? I don't anymore, no. So I've kind of, the podcast has kind of turned into my journal a little yeah. bit. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's... Uh, I express my feelings, I think, in a lot of lot of different ways. I'm lucky to have, uh, you know, a blog or podcasts or other things where I can put my feelings into now. Um, but I will say also that I've probably become um, a little bit more private recently, I would say. Um, you know, definitely something where uh, in the past I've been much more of like an open book, I think. Mm-hmm. And I've been uh, quick to rant or, or do other things. Now, you know, it's, it's, I try not to think of myself as somebody, um, you know, of like in like a leadership position, but I also want to make sure that like, you know, what I'm doing, I think sometimes can reflect on, um, the gym or CrossFit in the community or other things. So I want to make sure that like, I'm a little bit more intentional with, with how I speak about things outwardly, um, you know, in terms of like my own views and stuff. Uh, it's been interesting though, being, being married more now, you know, Marie and I really try to do a good job of like going out on dates and just, just talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think between those three mediums, uh, I haven't felt the need. I've also been better with like meditation and reading and some of those other more cerebral type things. Right. And so I think I, I don't feel the need to journal a lot. Um, but, uh, but I definitely think it's something that like when you need it, it's very valuable. Mm-hmm. And I was struggling through a lot of things when I was in basic training. Yeah. And so journaling was very powerful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and even going back and reading them, I don't think I have them anymore. They might be actually at my parents' house, but, um, but going back and reading those after, after I was done with the tomb and right. seeing how far you'd come, um, mentally really for me, that was a, that was a big, big, 
uh, eye opener. And, um, you know, it'd be cool to go back and read those even more now and really see the 19 year old version of yourself and how, right. how much I was struggling with, with some of those things and right. figuring out some of that stuff. And, um, yeah, yeah. But it was very needed for me at the time for sure. Absolutely. Um, so going back to kind of the pipeline for ranger school. Yeah. Uh, and I know you and I personally talked about this yeah. a couple of years ago. Um, plans changed. Didn't yeah. They? And you ended up going a different route. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting world. Um, so the, uh, the, the true story is honest. I don't tell the true story very often. Um, the, the story uh, is basically this. So we went, um, I went into airborne school. And uh, we started airborne school, it would have been beginning of November, right? So I was in airborne hold for a while, which is something they don't tell you about when you sign contracts in the military is, um, is you're going to go somewhere and they're going to hold you for a while. So mm-hmm. like there's like uh, when you go into basic training, it's like 30th AG and like you're just in hold waiting to start basic training, right? And they just hold you and it's like a, it's such a weird place. It's hard to even explain and then you graduate basic training, you think you're going to start airborne school like the next day, but you go into hold, right? And so you sit in these like faux barracks for like, I think we were there for like months oh, and you get so complacent, right? right. And it's, it's just a weird, a weird place. Um, you're you know, doing like PT or like training at Yeah, time, there's some structure to okay. it. But like, if you think about it, you don't, you don't have a job, you don't have a unit, you don't have... You just you and you'd have no freedom. Right. They keep you very buckled in still, mm-hmm. um, and so you have no no vehicles, no personal items, no nothing. Right? They they ship you to the mall like once a week, so you can buy like new razors and shit like that. But like mm-hmm. for the most part, it's very dialed in. And then then you start airborne school, and so we started airborne school, and I was um, a part of the most challenging company. They put all those soldiers in, so we're with all like the Force Recon Marines and Navy SEALs and all those people, and they throw you right in with them. And so you're getting experienced soldiers um, that you're going in through airborne school with from uh, the other services. And uh, so that was eye-opening. Yeah. Um, and the people that we were training with, PT got taken to a whole different level. And the different companies for airborne school have different vibes. So do the different sticks or classes that you go through with. And we were in one of the most intense vibes. Um, so I started going through and it was a bit of an eye opener uh, for what the future was going to hold in terms of like the caliber of what some of those um, athletes, I guess you would say, I mean, right. soldiers, what they're capable of. I mean, it is truly incredible. I think people, you know, you see what people can do in CrossFit and it's incredible, but there are some guys in the military that can do some things that, you know, Froning and Frazier could not. I mean, I've literally watched a guy do a thousand flutter kicks in a row without stopping, which is asinine. I mean, it's fucking insane to think about. And so there's some things like that, um, that, that was opening in airborne school. And so when we started training, um, we had done four jumps. We had one jump left, but Thanksgiving hit. And so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we got our first pass, which is like the worst thing that you could give to a bunch of 20, 21 year old kids. And so we went up to uh, one of the soldiers who was in our group. Uh, his name is Evan. And we uh, drove up to Nashville, which is only like a three hour drive from Fort Benning or four hour drive, something like that. And uh, went to a party at Middle Tennessee State, mm-hmm. right? 
And so you have to think about the soldiers that you've just unleashed into the community, right? right? You have these like high flying, super motivated, uh, 19, 20 year olds. And now you put them at a frat party in college. And so, uh, so we ran into a weird situation and, um, there was a girl basically being physically assaulted. That was, um, one of Evan's little brother's friends. So Evan's little brother, Ryan, small scrawny dude. And he walks in on this, starts to pick a fight with these, these frat guys and, and trouble started. And there's like eight of us. And, um, and so basically we got into what would be like a, I mean, a pretty large size brawl, mm-hmm. um, at this, at this frat. And, um, and I shat, ended up shattering both of my hands. And so, um, so I had boxers fractures in both hands and, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, broken wrists and a couple other things. Um, you know, one of those things where, you know, you're looking back, you're like, you know, it's, it's <clears throat> half stupid, half, you know, you're just protecting the guy next to you for the most part. And that's right. really all I remember about it. I don't think even at the time that we knew why we were fighting, we just saw R- Ryan getting beat up by a bunch of frat dudes. Right. And so you just jumped to help him. Right. Um, and so, uh, so I went back and we have one jump left and I've got just bruised hands like you wouldn't believe and they they don't work. And so like, I couldn't really even pull my rafter safely. So the plan was to finish the jump and, uh, and then go to the doctor afterwards. Right. And so, um, so I go and I do the jump and I couldn't pull the risers. And so if you can't pull the risers, you're kind of at the, the wind's desire. Mm -hmm. And so I came down and landed like they call it feet ass head. So going backwards with the wind, right. Which is the way you do not want to land. Right. And so I smacked my head real hard and I think, you know, probably had a minor concussion, was, was relatively unconscious for a little while. So then the, the parachute's just dragging you across the landing zone for a while. And so, um, some kind of there getting dragged. One of the, um, you know, Sergeant Airborne's come, they come running after you, they unclip you and I kind of come to and he's yelling at me and, um, and I probably got lucky in hindsight yeah. because he saw my hands. And I think they, you know, we played. I played it off as an injury that basically happened during the jump. Right. And um, and so then they shipped me off to the medical tent, and I, you know, went through uh, their whole protocol and got all the X rays and all that stuff. And I ended up in uh, in two, you know, full casts down to my forearms like this, and uh, and got put back into airborne hold. And so, uh, revert. And that was like, uh, that was a really dark, like four to six months because everybody that I had gone through training with up to that point mm-hmm. moved on and went on to the Ranger indoctrination program right. and, uh, went on to, to their units. And so, um, so all that was happening. And then, so basically everybody I knew, um, was like there one day gone the next, and then you have zero contact with them cause they go back into their hold. They go into Ranger hold, right. And you're still an airborne. And so, um, but when I was in hold at that point, because I had already sort of graduated, they gave me a little bit more freedom. Mm-hmm. So I was able to use computers. I was able to talk on the phone. And uh, I don't know if my mom remembers it too much at that point, but, um, but you know, I was, went from doing very well to very much struggling, like not sh- very unsure of the future. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff gets thrown at you at the time. And uh, so that was really uh, a tough point. And so a few 
months went by with that, uh, most of the winter and uh, around New Year's. Um, so, you know, probably six, six weeks, five weeks, six weeks later, um, I got told that my, uh, my contract was gone and so that I couldn't go to Rangers or Special Forces. And so, uh, so then the next question is, well, where am I, where am I going? Right. And they just tell you, you're going to the needs of the army. And so you're, you're up in limo and you have no control. Mm -hmm. And so then you start asking a bunch of questions, uh, and start kind of finding out that where people are getting shipped, it's like, you know, Kansas and Korea and all this different stuff. And so that was like probably it, not the scariest 48 hours, but like, you know, you join and you think you're going to be going special forces. And so you think you're going to be working with a caliber of soldier. That's maybe a little bit higher. That's maybe a little bit, a little bit better. And, um, and then, you know, overnight you kind of find out that like, you're, you're not going to be doing that at all. Right. And you're going to go to, you know, a line unit that maybe is going to have a specialty. It might be something like a, a 10th mountain or a hundred first, um, or, you know, you might be shipped out to Korea and be living out there for the next like four or five years. So it was very interesting. And then, um, at the time the old guard, Washington DC was super undermanned. And so, uh, but you have very high requirements to make it in there. So the, the ASVAP score, the intelligence score that you take to get in, um, is the same as all special forces and, uh, and all of that. And so that's the same requirement. And so I'd already met that. And then they have a height and a weight and a PT score requirement also. And so you have to be whatever above 5'10 or 5'11. Um, you can't be over 225 pounds. And you have to have a PT score, I think, above 270. And and 90% across um, the, the three spots. Right. And so, um, so I met all those at the time. And so as soon as I went on Needs of the Army, I mean, it was less than 48 hours. And the guy came and told me, hey, you're going to D.C. And we'll have you there tomorrow. Wow. And so... Um, so I, you know, at that point with all the possibilities on the, on the table, right. you know, Korea or DC, like you're like, all right, cool. Like I can yeah. fuck with DC. Like DC is probably the best thing yeah. that could have happened. Not the worst place though. Like it's not Hawaii, right. you know, Alaska, <laughs> right. people like Alaska, Alaska is kind of a sweet duty station. There's the European, you know, front, you can go to Italy or sure. Germany. There's some of those things where I probably would have gotten pretty excited to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but DC was, it, it, you know, it's definitely not Fort Riley, Kansas or, um, you know, some of those other places that people always like talk about just dreading going cause right. it's just like a dead town. And so, uh, so yeah, so left for, left for DC, um, the next, next week and, um, yeah. And and then things just happen, you know, pretty, pretty crazy fast from there. It's like, once you get to your unit, then, then it's a whole different world. You know, you enter the real army and and that's like, that's kind of its own piece. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so you go to DC, you know that there's a need for more guards at the tomb of the unknown yep. going down this path when you get to dc i've always been fascinated by the tomb of the unknowns and i keep saying every summer that i want to go back because mm-hmm. it's been so long um massive respect for what they do because like for me and you know i have a massive respect for all of, all of the military and um you know obviously i think most people recognize the tough training of you know, your special forces, your rangers, your SEALs, yeah. you know, force, Marine Force Recon, all those guys. But the ability to maintain your positions 
during guarding the tomb, no matter what the situation is, no matter what the weather is, yeah. is just mind-boggling to me. So can you talk about the training a yeah. little bit and your experiences? And, and I got to imagine that some of that had to have been just not challenging, not only challenging physically, obviously, but mentally yeah. being able to stay in that role like that for so yeah. long. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's very, uh, it's very different, you know, so the, you know, you take special forces guys and stuff like that. Like obviously what they do is so challenging on, you know, a physical and a mental timeline and they're obviously training for something that's so much more, you know, real. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the, um, you know, the comparison uh, to me has never seemed fair just because, um, you know, those guys are, are so much more, I'm not, I hate to use the term like real soldiers, but they're just, they're training for something that's so much more, um, yeah, exactly. And just, you know, the, if they, if they mess up, like if you're a tomb guard and you mess up, you know, you let people down, um, you know, if you're a special forces guy and you mess up, you can get people killed or you can get, um, you know, you can get, let a bad guy live, right. you know, right. who, who really shouldn't be, um, or however you want to, however you want to take that. Um, so, um, you know, when I had gone down, uh, to DC originally, you know, I, per, I did funerals in Arlington, which at the time, you know, again, the influx of, you know, the surge in, um, Afghanistan had unfortunately led a lot of, you know, KIAs and, um, you know, I was performing a lot of funerals that were, that were young, people mm-hmm. and you know it um I took that job a lot more seriously than other people mm-hmm. and there were situations and things that had happened that didn't sit well with me for the soldiers who were who were doing those and and so much much the same like I assume guys who are going special forces don't like the lackadaisical attitude that a line unit soldier might have with their weapon right, right. or the you know marines are going to respect their weapon a certain way but you know, and, um, accounting clerk who has a rifle, you know, mm. maybe he's not going to have the same level of respect for it. Right. Um, so it's kind of that same thing. You know, I just felt a little bit more passion, uh, towards what I was doing and, and doing those funerals had a large effect on me and meeting the families and seeing, um, seeing what that meant to them to have, have that, um, professionalism in, you know, their last, I guess their last time spent with their loved one, mm-hmm. you know, before they're, they're put underground, um, you know, to do that well and to do that professionally really meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that I was going to go down to the tomb once some of that had happened. Yeah. And so, and that really was, again, that's sort of the, that's the higher caliber taking it more seriously than, um, you know, than some of the other soldiers were willing to commit to. And so, so that was really what had, had motivated me. Um, and so, and just like you, I have a high respect for, you know, the military and a high respect for the sacrifice that those people were making. And so, you know, I didn't feel okay with my transition of low sacrifice to what I had joined the military for. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. It was easy being in the regular unit. Right. Um, and, and a lot of guys were very complacent with that and I had signed up for more than that. Right. So, so that was a big spurring decision, um, for joining the tomb. 
and it's all volunteer. You know, a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, there's a few phases of training. So your first phase is um, a temporary duty assignment for three weeks, and you go through the initial um, trial, basically. And so they teach you the moves, they teach you the steps, they teach you some of the basic knowledge that you're going to learn, and they just start to slowly test you. And really what they're testing is for people who were voluntold, right? Who were, we need 18 people and four volunteered, which this is pretty common. Four actually want to be there. 14 don't. Mm -hmm. So they use that TDY opportunity as a place to kind of say, you don't actually want to be here. And then they just fail you out, right? So that's kind of the first phase of that you have to kind of get through. Um, Not challenging, right? Uh, Relatively you know, longer hours than normal soldier, but, but nothing crazy. Mm-hmm. Once you graduate from that, then you go into real training and you go into a real tomb guard life, um, which, you know, a normal, uh, schedule for tomb guards is, you know, you'd wake up around four, four fifteen, um, shower, shave, cram some food if you can. And, um, if you are in training, you are going to, Grab your clothes. I lived in barracks. You're going to grab your all of your uniforms. You have to carry them to and from every day. Grab all your uniforms, all your shoes, everything, backpack, all the stuff that you're going to need for a day's work down there. And you're going to carry it about a mile, a mile and a half or so. And that's at about 4.30 to get there at about 4.45. Mm-hmm. 5 o'clock usually is when uh, changeover will start and new guys are responsible for GI in the quarters. And so basically... The tomb guards where you live um, are spotless. I'm talking like toothbrush in corners, spotless. And that's every day. Um, And so you wake up, uh, you start knocking that out about 6, 6 6.15. Your trainers will start to kind of roll in and will start to either accept the quarters and then you'll have a transition of reliefs. And so then the other relief will go off and you will come on and there's usually a little bit of downtime and stuff in between there. And then starting at 7 a.m., things kick on full gear. So uh, when you first start training, you're, you get nothing. Um, you basically, if you're lucky, you can earn night hours. <clears throat> so everything down there is earned. Um, and you start being given nothing. And so you basically have 27 hours and you're put at, you're in, um, class B's. I don't know what they wear now because they kind of got rid of that uniform in the army. They've changed the uniforms a few times since. That's so probably different now. Uh, but you're in class B's throughout the day, and um, and yeah, you you literally will sit in front of the mirror and train. There's two a uh, two sided mirror, one in front of you, one beside you, mm-hmm. and you'll practice the manual, which is the 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 uh, rifle movements. You'll practice that for probably about four to six hours throughout the day, um, usually about 40-minute stints at a time, mm-hmm. broken up by the guards walking and you preparing them to walk. Um, so it takes about two guys to get a guard prepared to walk, to get their belt set properly, to get their uniform up to speed, um, taped off, um, meaning every we, made, we make special lint rollers that are a little bit better, and um, every square inch of your uniform is going to be taped off. Your shoes are going to be polished. Your measures are going to be polished and straightened, measured, belt uh, measured, straight and straightened and tight. And so it, it takes about two guys to get that ready for you for every single walk. And that's done for every single walk. So um, your guards, your trainers would go up and walk. 
and then you would practice for about 30, 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. If you needed downtime or they, the, the guards needed quiet for whatever reason, um, sometimes as a guard that might just be fucking peace and quiet if you have a bunch of new guys slapping weapons around for like six hours straight you go a little bit batshit crazy (laughs) because the metronome's running the whole time Uh, and so you do everything to a metronome okay um and you just get this cadence drilled into you everything's two o'clock everything's counted all day long so you just hear this over and over and over again and so at a certain time you just tell them to shut up and then you'll then you'll go and um you'll practice knowledge and so I think at first you probably get two to three pages of knowledge that you have to earn as like a day one soldier. Mm-hmm. And you earn knowledge sheets by running through the headstone, running and finding headstones at night. And so when the cemetery closes, different for summer and winter, but let's just say around 7 p.m., mm-hmm. uh, closes to the public, about an hour goes by, you let everybody get out of the cemetery, and then it's starting to turn dark. And then um, they're going to start sending you. That's when your training begins as a brand new trainee, basically. Um, so you're up all day. You're, it's pretty chaotic. There's a lot of people stopping by the quarters. There's stuff going on. Some days are, are more chaotic than others. Um, you know, you have people from the line unit coming by and doing all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Normal soldier stuff. Uh, cemetery closes. And then, uh, then as a brand new soldier, you're running through the cemetery. Um, you're learning about the cemetery, you're learning about the tomb, the amphitheater, um, your trainees or in, in trainees and trainers are kind of working together at first and communicating consistently, practicing together and, and kind of walking people through the ropes of what training actually looks like. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times they will take you out to a headstone at first, right? Um, that kind of, um, most of this is not really cordial. Like you have to kind of imagine this is very much like a drill sergeant would be depicted in like a movie, right? It's, it's much more, um, superior and subordinate, um, relationship. And so, um, so then you start earning that. And once you earn your knowledge, um, that's when the mental aspect of it starts. So by the end of your training, you earn 17, uh, computer papers that are single spaced and, um, have all of the history and knowledge of the tomb, the cemetery, the cemetery landmarks. You have to know 140 figures, where they're buried, um, prominent historical figures, be able to tell trainers who that person is, and then be able to go to that headstone um, exactly where it's at. You know, and there's 650,000 headstones. So, um, so that's a big piece of the training for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what else you would do throughout the day is practice knowledge. And so that, that might be you and me are new guys together. So we're bouncing stuff off of each other. Um, there's all kinds of random other tasks and, and little games and stuff that you can play to start to memorize that stuff. Your test out for your final test then is you get 17 blank pages of computer paper and you have to complete it all, com- make it back verbatim from memory. And so and if you miss a period or you make a semicolon, a colon, or you miss an apostrophe, that counts as a gig, you get two gigs. Wow. Um, so you pretty much have to have all 17 pages memorized completely verbatim from, from scratch. Do they give you a deadline? Absolutely. How long did it take you, and what, what's the deadline for, for learning those 17 pages? So you don't have a deadline for training. Average training time for people is between seven and nine months. Um, it took me five. Um, it, I had a soldier that was in training for 16 months. 
um, and uh, at another soldier's in training for 14 months and then um, dropped on request. Um, and that, that, those, both of those guys, that was their piece. Yeah. They could not pass the knowledge test. Um, so if the guy's a good guard, if he's disciplined, uh, if he does all the things right and he just can't memorize, I, as a trainer, I threw, I threw those guys a bone if I could, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I can only throw you so many bones before we're cheating. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, and so right. I would, I would throw you bones like I could come over and watch where, what you had left blank and then start a conversation with another tomb guard mm-hmm. about that specific purpose right, person right, or something right. and hopefully jog your memory, little, little things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, if I wanted you to pass, if I thought that you were going to be a good guard, then, you know, you'd get those things done for you. But there are a lot of guys who just uh, way earlier in training, three, four months, they can't pass test two and, and test two is the one where, the knowledge test actually becomes starts to become very difficult. Right. Um, three ways, three things you get tested on outside performance. Um, so how close are your 21 counts to actually be in 21 seconds? Mm-hmm. Uh, how are your lines? How is your manual? There is the sheet would blow people's minds about how, how specific you can get with gigging a person outside. And that's why the outside performance is so consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, that's the one piece that's probably in my opinion, the least failed piece the second piece is the uniform. Um, the uniform standards are notoriously ridiculous. Um, and again, attention to detail is right. really what we're talking about. Um, you know, the final test is legendary um, in its difficulty. And it is really, truly now being separated from it. It is it is incredible. No, At no point ever in the rest of your entire life will you ever come close to working as hard at something as you do to get your uniform prepared for your final test. Um, it, it's it's an asinine amount of attention to detail um, and it's it's pretty cool to see I mean I'm talking like like q-tipping the lining of a head on a metal on your shoulder that like nobody could ever see no, if they wanted to yeah. um, and so uh, so that's your second piece and then your third piece is your knowledge uh, most people fail on, on one of the latter two um, so knowledge gets some guys, um, who maybe don't have good memorization tactics or don't have the attention to detail for that sort of training. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uniform gets a lot of people. And again, I think it's, um, attention to detail in the process. Um, so the process of the uniform is a grind and that's what, that's what really gets a lot of soldiers to want to drop on request. Right. right. So, so yeah, so those are your three tiers. Um, you know, test, test one's really simple. That usually happens pretty fast. Um, that's just like, you get like a, um, a grid, like it, it still asks you the questions. It says the people and then the section, then you have to fill in the numbers. So the, the, um, test is pretty easy from a knowledge standpoint. The uniform test is like, you know, can this put person put their shit on straight? And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. Basically test one then is you're actually ready to go outside. Got it. And so you can actually go outside and guard for the first time in training. They're going to give you the um, the beginning, the opening and closing hours. Um, they call them bullocks and be on the lookout, which is basically um, technically we're closed as a cemetery. We're not open right now, mm-hmm. so there shouldn't be anybody lurking or wandering around. Um, but um, 
but yeah, so that's, that's, you'll start with those hours and then you work your way closer and closer. And it's a, it's a really big day when you get your first nooner. Yeah. So noon, noon is like the, the most popular guard change. And it's, um, it's like your, your one that you aspire to. And that would be after like test three or four. Got it. Yep. Got it. Interesting. Um, how long were you a guard? About two and a half years. How many yeah. guys do you think you trained during that time? Um, really trained. Um, you know, a lot of those guys, a lot of the guys flake out fast. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count those guys. Right. Um, you know, at the time, uh, I think we had probably 60, 60 or so guards come out for our relief. Um, and two passed and four were actually like guys that like, I really devoted time and effort and energy into. Um, I also did some of the relief training for guys on other reliefs. Um, and so, you know, they, you kind of jump reliefs around a little bit, um, when you're first in training, they might move you because let's say all of my trainees on second relief all quit mm -hmm. and we've got no trainees and third relief has five, mm -hmm. they'll give us two. And so that was sort of what was happening at the time. We were really undermanned. And so, um, so I'd say probably somewhere around a hundred, soldiers or so, um, was probably about what I had trained, probably two or three actually passed and became, became guards. A very small percentage that actually got all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at the time we were, uh, we were in kind of a bad spot. Um, I don't know if it was leadership or what, but we were not getting many volunteers. The volunteers we were getting were very complacent, um, and things just weren't going very well. Um, you know, we were, at a, we almost went down to two reliefs for a while, um, like permanently. We did go down to two reliefs for a while. Um, so if you can imagine, your schedule normally is like 27-ish hours on, mm -hmm. then, you know, 20, 21 hours off, then on, off, on. And then you get three days um, to basically like redo your uniform and get your shit back together, like go to the grocery store and some of that kind of stuff. Right, right. Um, but when you go to two reliefs, it's day on, day off, day on, day off in perpetuity. And that's, that was one of the hardest things. I mean, you, it, like, you want to talk about dialing in your habits right. to accommodate a harder life. Um, that's the only way to approach that is like, I mean, I was never as dialed in with everything as I was when we went down to two reliefs mm -hmm. because you have no option to have any any freedom so like i mean you you get like i can't talk to anybody that i care about my cell phone is ex it's non-existent it's i mean it's you have 100 percent focus right. entirely to like go to the grocery get a workout prep food get my uniform ready get six hours of sleep get back in there and like and then do that at nauseum um so it's kind of fun again tomb soldiers are a very rare breed so it's one of the only places where like the morale almost picks up when you get into this insanely hard schedule right. because right. you're there for the challenge. Right. Like you're there so it'll suck. You're there so it'll be the hardest thing you've ever done. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see soldiers start to do crazy shit. They'll do Ironmans. So an Ironman is when a tomb guard gets on relief at 7 a.m. And they go out in full uniform. And they do every single walk the entire day. So they they basically go from 7 to 7. They do every single walk. And then at 7 p.m. when they go on for the last walk of the day, 
they stay on and they walk in their perfect 21s with perfect ceremonial composure for the entire basically 12 hours of night in full uniform. No water, no food, no bathroom. That's wild. No nothing. Um, that's so that's called an iron man um did you ever do that no um <laughs> so i did a su- uh no sorry that's called a superman i did an iron man okay so that's a superman is full uniform there is by the time i left there were five guys who had done it um ever ever okay yeah um i did an iron man everybody has to do an iron man an iron man is when you walk all day um, so same thing, seven to seven. And then at night you pull all the night hours, but you do it in BDUs. And so, and you're not locked up ceremonially. Um, the Superman is crazy. I don't, I mean, I didn't have the, I didn't have the body to do that. Right. I was breaking down physically, um, right. towards the end. And so I had really bad knee problems, really, really bad back problems. And, um, and so I didn't have the physical capacity to do that. That is, it's a again we talk about military guys. That's a whole different ball game of tough, physically and mentally. Um, I mean, I uh, yeah I don't know I don't I don't know if I could have ever done it. Um, and so there's a dude. His name's Justin Bickett, and uh, man, he did something crazy. I think he did like he did something like like two or three Supermans in a row, something like that. It's just like, I mean, it's kind of a legend down there. Right, it's like, right. I mean, it's pretty crazy. And he wasn't, he was maybe two generations before me. So he trained my trainers. Okay. And so it was pretty close. Um, right. Yeah. For a long time, he had the most walks and changes ever. There was a board. They've taken it down since then. There's, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of drama sure. around tomb guards yeah, with any special force community. There's drama with boards and plaques and awards and, and competitions right, and all right. this shit. And so different people will be turned off by different um, eras of people. But during my time, they had a board for who had the most walks, who had the most guard changes, and they were called points. Um, so who basically could earn more more points. Basically, who could do more work. Right. And, um, and I mean, it, it was a crazy competition. I mean, guys, guys shooting for this. And, I mean, they were doing... 22 walks a day for three a, a three-day cycle in a row, 66 walks in a day, uh, or 66 walks in a cycle, and doing that for months on end. Um, I mean, to give you to give you an idea, I would be physically exhausted after like four walks, five walks. These guys are doing 22 a day. And I did that while I was in training, but that's right. what I think physically beat me down so bad. Right. Um, and I wasn't, and again, if you're like, if you're thinking about that, you don't get time to like take care of yourself like we don't have physical therapists or chiropractors you don't have like time to do pt which like towards the end i started to realize that that was happening and that was when i started doing crossfit stuff Mm -hmm. was that was like i i needed i started researching 20 minute workouts um like what's like what's the best workout i can get in 15 minutes Right, right right um and and started finding that and then there were a couple guys who were coming from um, special forces and joint services, um, units that had heard about it and, um, had started to kind of do it with me. And so, um, we basically, we were doing Cindy every other day was like, that was the only workout we could find. <laughs> and so I've done Cindy like, like probably 250 times. Like wow. it's like, cause we were just doing it. That was, that was, it was 20 minutes. It was, you can do it anywhere. You can right. do it at any time. Um, and it was a super simple way for us to kind of break ourselves off and it's a good PT test thing for pushups. Right. So, right, sure. um, and so that was kind of how we started to dive into that. Okay. 
Um, so kind of keep going with that. You're towards the end of your military career. Yep. You're getting into CrossFit. Yep. Um, you're doing Cindy a crazy amount of times. Yeah. Uh, I assume you come home after the military, yep. come back to Columbus. Yep. And there was the old video I saw, and I think it was of you and Jay maybe doing an open. And yeah. Was it your garage? Your that was Grant's. Garage? That was Grant's. Or yeah. Grant's garage? Yeah. Um, and I think Jay or uh, G was in that yeah. uh, video too. Yeah. So you come home and you tell these guys, hey, I've been doing crosses. This is great. Do you guys want to try it with me? Yeah, it's pretty similar to that. Yeah, so um, so I was I was very thoughtful in my approach going down to the tomb. I had two and a half years left on my contract uh, when I signed up for it. It was the last class that I could have taken, and I knew that that would take me up to the end of my military career, and I thought that that would be kind of a cool way for me to um, finish out my military career, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, towards the end of my time, Sitting right back here, actually. Got, got an MSM for, oh, my, cool. for my service there, which um, I was the first soldier to, to get that high of an award, which that's a pretty pretty high award. I don't know if I necessarily earned that all the way, comparatively, because there were a lot of guards before me that were phenomenal tomb guards who didn't get that high of an award. Awesome. Um, but, uh, but you know, I had, I had set some landmarks um, while I was down there and done some things that had never been done by a tomb guard before. And so um, I had really gotten heavily pressured to... Um, to re-enlist and to go. There were a bunch of different paths that people were doing. Um, but I kind of circumvented that by applying to Ohio State and other colleges um, in Ohio before all that had happened. Mm-hmm. So I already had an answer. I already right. had a start date. And it worked out well. Um, you know, it, as you can imagine, as a tomb guard, you accumulate vacation days like nobody's business. And so I had 90 days of vacation um, to use. And so basically I just got out early and had basically what would be like a three-month severance package. Wow. And so I actually, my real last day is October 26th, but I actually got out in the end of July. Okay. What year was that? Uh, that was 2009. 2009. Yep. Okay. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so it was, um, yeah, I think about five, uh, almost almost six years of um, of you know, service, mm-hmm. uh, active, and then, um, went into the reserves to finish out. You technically sign an eight year contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so went into the reserves to finish out my latter two years. And so, um, but I started back at Ohio state in August or September, whenever they started school that year. Mm-hmm. Um, they were still in semesters at the time and I, and that was it. The GI bill was like, they were paying you money, housing stipend to go to school. And you had a very finite amount. And so coming from the workload that I was, and again, same thing as a tomb guard, you think about you don't ever spend money either, right? You just don't, you don't have a life. And so you're just banking all that money. So I was sitting on a pretty decent pile of money that I had had saved up. And the GI Bill was going to pay me to go to school. And so I didn't take that lightly. And I really, I think I took, I was taking like 28 hours uh, of classes um, for those first two years. And so, um, you know, I was a very full-time student, an extra full-time student, right? Um, and, but that was it. Uh, I didn't have a job. So you can imagine going from a job where you're working, you know, 120 hours a week and it's all you do from wake up to sleep every single day. Right. Um, and you're only sleeping, you know, four or five hours a night, every night to, I can sleep eight to 10 hours a night, every night. I can go to school for eight hours 
and I still have like eight hours <laughs> left and it's like, and you have all this freedom. And, and so, um, so I started, uh, started researching and studying, started, uh, diving into CrossFit a little bit more and researching myself. And there was not a lot of resources and stuff back then. So you're really, you're really partitioning, right? Is you would learn about powerlifting from West side materials, right? You would learn about aerobic training through, um, you know, varying triathlon sources and marathon sources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you learn about gymnastics from Jeff Tucker who became CrossFit gymnastics which was pretty cool. Right. Um, but you were very partitioned in how you could learn about that stuff at the time. Jim Wendler's five, three, one was just coming out. And so it was very big. And we had a friend that, uh, Jay and I grew up with and actually known him since I was in kindergarten who trained at West side. And so he, um, had kind of turned us on to some of their methods. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I had started doing most of that stuff at Lifetime uh, in Dublin, mm-hmm. and it didn't take long for me to do a deadlift workout, and I'm sure it's totally different. I haven't been in there since, but I'm sure it's totally different. I think they have a full CrossFit section, group class section, platforms, right. and all that right. stuff now. But they had nothing back then. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but the lifting section at Lifetime in Dublin is on the second floor. And so I was did uh, Tabata deadlifts. And they told me, you can't do that. It's too loud for the offices downstairs. Metal weights clanging. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, right, right. you can't, I'm a paying member of this facility. Right. It's you a weight room. Yeah. You cannot tell me that I can't lift weights. <laughs> right. And they're like, eh, you can lift weights. You just can't lift them like that. And so I, I just thought it was like ridiculous. So right. I quit that day and um, got a job down at Rogue mm-hmm. and uh, bought my first series of like bumpers from them with my employee discount. And so, um, so then as I started working there, I was like employee number six at Rogue. Their, their space was the size of this room. And, um, and they started diving into their different paths. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they were trying barbells. They were trying, you know, shirts and rings and some of that kind of stuff. But they were getting a decent amount of returns with their initial like squat, station, uh, squat stands and uh, rigs and barbells and bumpers. That stuff was kind of getting sent back. Right. And at the time, Bill didn't have a great plan for what he was going to do with it. And mm-hmm. so it just kind of sat on the side. And then eventually I just kind of had asked like, what are we going to do with this? So they ran their first garage sale, which now are like huge. huge. But back then they were like, five of us and it was all employees basically. (laughs) And so, uh, so we started doing that and, uh, I got a squat station. I got a barbell. I got a full load of bumpers, kettlebell, GHD, um, Grant bought a rower with his own money and he had started, he was a marathoner Mm -hmm. and he had, um, developed some hip issues with marathoning and I had really turned him on to CrossFit endurance, which was big at the time. And tried to get him into understanding that cross training really is going to have a lot more value to you than going out and running 18 miles and breaking your body down, which is what he was really doing. And so I really, um, you know, I kind of got obsessed with it, Um, not just the training aspect of it, but like the knowledge base aspect of it, too. Um, They came out with paleo stuff. So I started eating paleo. They came out with zone. So I started eating paleo zone. I went from like 205 pounds of like kind of soft power lifty, right. um, you know, training style uh, to like 170 and like 4% body fat, just like so dialed in on nutrition stuff. Right. Um, and so I had been doing that and then Tabata deadlift came back up. Which, to buy a deadlift, a fucking stupid workout. Nobody should ever do it, right? <laughs> but came back up. I was following CrossFit football at the time, and they were posting that workout every six months or so, something like that. 
uh, but prescribed is 315. And so I go to do Tabata deadlift at 315. Probably know where this is going to go, right? <laughs> well, there goes there goes the disc, right? Yeah. I already had a bad back. Right, um, right. And, uh, and man, I, uh, I had partial tears in, like, my vertical lumbar. I probably, you know, I, I didn't have um, health insurance at the time, so I never went and got x-rays or anything like that. But, um, you know, my dad or my uncle's a um, family practice doctor, and, you know, he told me, just relax, but I'm sure I probably had a slip disc or bulging disc, which I've had since and right. felt very similar. But bedridden, I mean, couldn't put on my own socks, couldn't couldn't do anything. Uh, definitely couldn't go and work the warehouse at Rogue. Right. Um, so I was stuck. I had three three weeks of of sitting on my ass at my house, and I was pissed at myself for being such an idiot. And so, but that was that was it. I signed up for my level one that week that, that those weeks when I was hurt. I read the entire level one training manual, bought a journal subscription. And read every single article and watched every single video that they've ever put out, um, and bought probably I don't know ten books on um, strength training, anatomy, mm-hmm. nutrition, and that three weeks um, I basically guess you'd say like I did a crash course on it, um, and then uh, then I started to ask um, a couple friends if I could train them if they were interested in working out maybe um just said hey i'd like to just have you come and try this i'd like to walk you through it and uh see if it'd be okay if you know i trained you a little bit and just for free and so uh this was still in grant's garage i lived with grant at the time and it was our condo and there was like a separated external garage and so uh four or five people started to come Jay had started to work out with me and Tom had was living with Jay at the time and he had started to work out. So we had um, Grant, Jay, Tom and I were um, really the most consistent. Mm-hmm. There were a few other people who were coming by every now and again. Grant had started to date Kristen. So she had started to test, it, test the waters a little bit. Tommy, Pat, a um, couple people, you know, who, yeah. who still kind of ended up with friendship started to come around. Um, but we all were sort of unhappy with the rest of our lives outside of that, right? We, we didn't have a great social outlet um, outside of that. We didn't enjoy our jobs. I wasn't super fulfilled by school. Um, I didn't necessarily believe in what I was going to use school for. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, but we couldn't consistently get our schedules together except for on Fridays. And so on Fridays then we, we knew we could get together and we could stay out and do it, be as late as we wanted. And so we started Friendship Fridays and that was basically what kind of started it is, it was the only day that we knew that we could all get together. Nobody would ever schedule or plan anything on the calendar on the weekend and we'd start to get more and more people there. And we'd do, we'd do classic workouts. We'd do Fight Gone Bad, we'd do Girls, we'd do that and it might be one at a time, but everybody cheered each other on while the other people were going. Um, Jay and I would coach. Jay was a personal trainer at the time. Um, Jay and I would coach people, and uh, and it was just fun. It was just it was just guys being friends, really. That's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think CrossFit, especially recently with the whole change to <clears throat> the way the competition is set up, and you know, Greg Glassman has come out and said, "I want to kind of get redoubled into more of." of what it was at a grassroots community. Yeah. Um, this, this essential, essentially an, an initiative to combat 
the unhealthy lifestyles that yeah. we have accepted as a norm. Yep. Um, so really cool story there. And obviously that was, that was cool for you guys. You love doing that. At what point did you say, Hey, maybe we could do, maybe we could open up a gym and yeah. do a business out of this. Yeah. So Pat was doing box jumps and, uh, <laughs> and we had this crazy neighbor who just lost her mind. I mean, she came out and this was something out of a sitcom. Like you never see this shit in real life. And this woman just came out just guns a blazing. Like, this is insane. What the fuck is going on? How do you think you can blah, 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 Just batshit crazy. Right. And, and so like we were just trying, we tried to be real calm about it. Like just yeah. like, you know, not a big deal. We're just exercising. And she was having none of it. So of course, next board meeting, this woman is there and she is as zealous as you could imagine. Uh, brings it up as soon as it's open, brings it up and uh, we lose our uh, garage privileges for, for three months. Really? And so Grant, uh, Grant was on the board for the condo at the time and he was really worried about like the perceptions of it and everything like that. And, um, and so we had a true, like we had a true, like, man's apartment like this was like i mean there was <laughs> Kristen and maria would have lost their shit right they, they would not have they would not have existed in this uh in this man den that we had created and uh and so we had whiteboards hung up all over the place um and we were both like obsessed with like writing our ideas down grant and i have been very entrepreneurial since we were young and it was just never really um th- those flames were never fanned really properly until we had really lived together and then it was just ideas were coming all the time and we just needed we needed something like that to have us like that woman doesn't know it but like that was the best thing that ever happened because we never would have it, it was time to shit or get off the pot basically right. we didn't we you know so we had all these people who wanted to train we had a gym or you know a garage full of equipment mm-hmm. and um and sort of an ultimatum mm-hmm. and so, um, so we made the call. So we started looking, um, you know, Grant was, it truly is one of those things, you know, when people open gyms now, and I do a lot of consulting for people who have opened gyms over the years and we, we didn't know what we were doing, but we very luckily backed into having four people that created a perfect team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Grant was an absolute all-star with, city codes, rents, leases, looking for locations, all the business stuff, getting our LLC, like doing like mm-hmm. we would have never gotten off the ground if somebody didn't know how to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that happened. Um Tom at the time was at Ohio State getting his second master's degree in 3D animation and design and he was a computer guy. Yeah. And so Tom's just, yeah, I can build a website for us. No problem. Like, okay, let knock that out, right? Awesome. Um, you know, Jay, personal trainer. Yeah. I've got some clients I could maybe bring over. Awesome. Right. And then it's like, I've got a lot of leadership and operational capacity. Right. Right. And so, um, like we kind of didn't even talk about it. We didn't define roles and responsibilities. And like I said, um, you know, I had bought uh, a Harley Davidson with, with some of that extra money that I had Mm -hmm. and I sold that. And, um, and I put in $15,000 and Grant put in $15,000 and, I was a starter at our gym and that was it. And so we found a space on Fiesta Drive that was, the rent was $800 a month and it was a um, thousand square feet, 800 square feet of workout space and 200 square feet of office space. Had a really cool entry room, which to this day, 
I still wish we had something like it. It was, um, it was, it forced conversation. Hmm. Um, it was very intimate. You couldn't sit in that room with somebody else and not strike up a conversation. And that, if I had to peg our success down to one thing, like it, there's a million factors, but the fact that we had a closed door and then a lobby where people were forced to get to know each other, that became the success mm-hmm. is like people would show up early for class and sit out there and that lobby area would be louder than the workout area. People were just laughing and joking and getting to know each other and just being involved with each other's lives and relationships. And those initial 30 to 40 members just became uh, family. I mean, they became really tight and, um, you know, I worked my butt off, um, those first few years and, um, you know, it was, it was one of those things where like, you don't, again, you don't know what you're doing. You know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about business or operations. I was researching all night. Um, usually, you know, and same thing, like I didn't have a life, right? Like I, there's nothing else in my life going on. Um, we, we had a 6am class and then like, a five and a 6 p.m. class and I went to school in between mm-hmm. and um and then afterwards at night I would um I wrote like blog posts every night um and then I would stay up and research what other gyms are doing um mm-hmm. read everybody's website read all their workouts call the owners um and just start researching and um and yeah so that that first year um you know we we opened in uh June and then by September, October, I, you know, Grant and I had to look at each other and we were just like, you know what, like, we don't have any more space now. So that quickly. In hindsight, though, <laughs> we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We could have had a 9.30 a.m. and a noon. And right. we could have, like, gone until Jay actually could support an income. Like, we weren't making, <laughs> we weren't making any money. We were, if we actually, I think, I think I paid myself the entire first year, like, a thousand bucks, right. For like an entire year of work. And like we paid Jay salary because he wasn't a part of the ownership commission or anything like that. And so, um, so I mean, we didn't make any money. We reinvested a hundred percent of everything that we made. And so, um, so you look back and we were just like, Oh, we're out of space. We got to move. And it's like, you had like, we like 40 members or 50 members. Like we weren't out of space at all. Um, we just didn't have any concept of operational capacity Mm -hmm. on how to like run a good class and offer more times based on that. Um, and again, we weren't thinking about things like from a business perspective, we literally were just like, like all these people are now my friends and my social atmosphere. Like I I want to have more friends and more social atmosphere. So let's, let's, you know, open it up. And so, we started to look for other spaces and real estate's weird around our area. It's like you either have like a 1500 or 2000 foot, like uh, you know retail space. So like there's that peak fitness mm-hmm. right in between where Fiesta is and our current location by that vape store. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's yep. like, I drive by it all the time. I've never been right. in, but that, that location is like 1500 square feet, right. low ceilings and retail rates, mm-hmm. which retail rates are ungodly expensive. Right. And so that was the jump though. It was like 1500 to 2000 square feet or 10,000 standalone. And so, you know, Grant and I had talked and, um, I mean, it was a huge risk, you know, in yeah. hindsight, like we would never, 
we would never take a risk like that now, right. I think, just because it was so stupid. <laughs> but at that point, like, you didn't, we didn't, we were just, you know, ideal. we were op- very optimistic, right? right? We were right. just having the time of our lives, and right. it was as fun as it could be, and so that was a, it was a cool dream to chase, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, so then we, we looked at it, and and I, we were all, we were just, it was a joke. Like, I mean, we weren't serious that we were going to get the reflection, the current location. Right. Because it was such an astronomically huge space difference. I'm talking like, like 800 square feet is like not much more than the size of like these two rooms. Like it is, yeah. it's like, it's, it's so small. Right. It's, it's not even half of our entryway. Right. And you go to the current location and there's walls everywhere. You have to blow down. There's all this build out. There's, you know, no paint on the walls. There's no nothing. It's like, I mean. What was it before you guys moved in? So there's an art studio um, and the guy, um, you know, he built like uh, signage posters okay. and print print materials. Sure. And, uh, and yeah, and so he was, he was looking to lease it. And, I mean, we're like taking like fake wigs and, and wardrobes out um, when, when they moved in. They didn't take them. And so, uh, and then, yeah, we're blowing down walls and doing all kinds of other stuff. And, I mean, never in our wildest dreams would we ever have thought that we would have even used half the space. Yeah. Um, but the standalone parking lot was a cool concept. And, uh, and at the time, I mean, it put us by far and away the largest CrossFit gym in Columbus. Right. Right. And, um, and so that was kind of a cool, cool prospect. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we did that and then, um, you know, really started to talk to people about, you know, bringing friends and, and doing, doing some things like that. And, and so started to try to grow and, uh, our community was awesome and they, they brought friends and they brought family and, and we had enough people to support that financially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, but now looking back, it's like we had enough to keep being, you know, 22 year old single people with nothing else in our lives. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's, that's about where we were at with that. So, um, so, you know, business wise after a little while, um, it becomes untenable to make you know, 6,000 bucks a year, right? right. Or for Jay to make, you know, 20,000 bucks a year. Um, and so, so then you have to start looking at things and being like, okay, like, you know, if we actually do want to do this, um, you know, this does is going to be our, people's full time things, then we have to make sure that we're starting to, you know, be take steps to be a legitimate business. And so, um, so that that transition going backwards like that, um, you know, that that was, you know, the next challenge mm-hmm. for me. Um, so, so yeah, and that came in all kinds of different, um, you know, challenges and struggles. And, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things that everything that, everything that's happened from, I mean, take it all the way back to airborne school. It's like all, everything that's happened from high school. Um, you know, it's all, it's all been such a great, um, learning lesson. Yeah. You know, it's like, if you don't go through that, if you don't experience that struggle, um, you know, then who knows where you would have landed or what would happen. Right. So, right. You know. I've listened to so many podcasts. Uh, one of my favorite ones is called How I Built Us. It's an NPR podcast yeah. of, of entrepreneurs and, and how they made their start and everything. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you started in your, your garage. Yeah. You move on to Fiesta, which is a small, you know, and then all of a sudden you make this huge jump to the current location of Reflections. Yeah. Was there any point along the way where you looked at Grant, Grant looked at you, and were like, "Holy shit! Like, what happens if this just falls apart on us?" Were you ever? Was there any? Were there any moments over the course of that time where you're like, 
Yeah, I'm not sure. Not sure if this is going to work out. Should we yeah. abandon ship? Entrepreneurialism is weird. Um, I have what I consider now to be a very, very healthy feel, fear of failure. I still, to this day, worry that we're not going to be able to make ends meet, pay the coaches, and but I think that's healthy, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's something. If I don't have that fear, then I would get complacent. Mm-hmm. And if I get complacent, then um, now at this point, like it's good that like Andy has a child on the way and Eric um, has kids and Liz has kids um, because that makes me so motivated to make sure that they are um, living their best life and able to provide and able to love what they do and be what our ethos is, which is to be able to have a happy and a healthy family and be able to enjoy your life with health and fitness and you know some discipline to support that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, be, being able to provide that for people has become you know something that I'm super proud of and and I hope to be able to do that for more people in the future, to be able to provide more jobs that are very fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think it's so exciting is if the job is fulfilling to, let's just take Andy, if the job is very fulfilling to Andy, why is it fulfilling? Mm-hmm. Because that means that clients are being successful. That means that there are people in our community who are getting off prescription drugs, who are losing weight, who are finding more discipline, who are living in better relationships and are happier. That's what's fulfilling to coaches. So if I'm able to have fulfilled coaches, that means, you know, by nature then that, that people are experiencing success in our doors. And so, um, so that was something, you know, at first you're so, um, you're, you know, you're staring right at the tree, but you don't see the forest kind of a thing, you know? And so there were lots of times, you know, when Jay, uh, told us that he was leaving, um, that was a really tough time, you know, cause it wasn't just Jay, it was Jay and Kristen. Right. right? And right. so they were both, um, you know, our two main full-time head coaches. Tom was very part-time. Jenny and Maria weren't there coaching yet. Um, and I feel like you're losing did you feel like you were losing the identity a little bit? Because, I mean, Jay yeah. Jay was there from the beginning. Yeah. You know, he was one of your best friends. Yeah. Yeah, um, that, and I mean, we that talked about so it. Tough. Yeah, that's so tough. Yeah, and, and Grant and I talked about it, and it was, you know, the the, the two ways that we can look at it is, um, you know, let's put our head back to the grindstone and let's dive in and figure it out, or let's just close up shop, say it was a good run, um, you know, and, and that was it. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, the, the Lisa Guzik's and the Star Foxes and, um, you know, the Kristen Harlow's and Sarah and Zach and Pat, um, it wouldn't have been fair to them if we took friendship away, um, from them because, yeah, because, and, and there's, I mean, there's a hundred other people at the time who had, who loved it, who supported us, who, you know, if you were to really take a step back and have a real conversation with them, they would tell you, this is one of the very few things in my life that I enjoy. And Jay and Kristen were a huge part of that enjoyment um, for them. And probably for a lot of them, they were the main part of the enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I talked to Tom about it and I talked to Grant about it. And I knew... Maria, you know, would be interested in coaching and I knew that she could have that same impact on people. 
And, you know, I knew that we could, we could do our best. And I thought it was unfair to quit without taking the time to at the very least give it our best shot. Like, you know, it may not be as, um, it might not be the same, right? Because personalities and relationships are going to be different. Right. Um, but we can work our asses off and still make it damn good and do our best. And so I thought we owed that to the people who had, um, who had really given everything to us, um, you know, and supported us through, um, through failures. I mean, like we, we weren't great coaches. We weren't great programmers. Our facility wasn't the nicest, you know, like there, those, those people were, were sticking with us through stuff that was tough. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so we needed to do our part to make sure that they were, they were getting, um, you know, whatever, whatever I had left. Right. And so, um, you know, well, you know that's the biggest challenge I think in uh, the health and fitness industry is, you know, you you started you know very humbly in the garage and you had those relationships, but you know it wasn't necessarily them coming to the gym to seize your equipment. Yeah. It was them coming to the gym because of the relationships that you built with yeah. them. Yeah. And I found it to be the same when I was still coaching that. People will come because of the relationships that they have with the coaches, yep, or with the you know with the friends that they have that come to the same class time and stuff like that. Yeah. So I remember when I was when I was kind of managing my department, you know, a few years ago, that was one of the biggest challenges is when one of your coaches decided to leave. Yeah. Because they have this strong relationship with your clientele yep. that you know maybe you as as an owner or a director of a department or whatever don't necessarily have because yep. you're you're managing things or, yeah. or whatever um yeah it's their job it's not necessarily your job you know right. like that's that's right. the thing that's tough is you know their job is to be dialed in with that relationship mm-hmm. um you know and and my job is to manage those those coaches so that they don't have to worry about you know their own insurance or finance or payroll or healthcare or taxes or whatever it is like mm-hmm. you're managing the billion thing you know making sure they have programming and and all that other stuff right. that you do behind the scenes so that they are free to indulge in those relationships and like you said then the hardest part is feeling like when they leave because of the coach right mm-hmm. and that's every time that we've had coach turnover you know you're going to lose five to 10% of your clientele. Um, and that's just, that's something we know. It just, it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it happens is because they felt, you know, that they were more, more with the coach, with that person than they were with the facility. And, you know, it's tough because they're all different, right? All the coaches are different and they all have their own strengths and weaknesses. But I think the, over the years now, I see the variety as value. Like, I think that that's something now that like, I would tell you like, okay, if you get coached all the time by Jay, well, Jay's got blind spots. Jay's got strengths and weaknesses as a coach. Mm-hmm. And Jenny might not have those same blind spots. And Maria might not have those same blind spots. Right. So indulging and getting coached by other people actually can be a really big net benefit to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's one of those things that Again, people are so adverse to change. It's right. been fun to run the gym just to be more aware of human psychology in that capacity. It's yeah. like you really do see how powerful taking the time to build relationships is. Right. Um, and I think that that's what if, – if we've done anything, 
you know, the fitness is great, but the, the community, the, the relationships, you know, you meeting your wife, me meeting my wife, the, the dozens of other people that have met their wives and are now having kids and, and all of these things in, in, in the future, the 20 or 30 or 40 weddings that we'll have in the future. Right. Um, you know, that type of thing is, is rare. And I think that that's, what's so cool about the, that kind of continuing on, Mm -hmm. right. Is, you know, it would have been easy to, to shut it down after Jay and Kristen. And, but you would have never met Kristen if we did that. Right. Exactly. You know, and yeah, that's I'm, what you think about. It's like, it's crazy to think about that. But Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm really glad you brought that up because, um, that's the thing that I would try and focus on, no. um, is, you know, you're, like you said, when, when you lose staff members for whatever reason, um, and like you said, the five to 10% of clientele that, you know, potentially will leave with them. Yeah. Um, it's the ones that you do see the relationship, you know, Mimi and Kristen and, yeah. and all the other people. And, um, I've felt very much the same way when I would see some of the athletes that I worked with, uh, you know, sign a scholarship and play division one sports somewhere else yeah. or whatever. It's those people that, you know, it, it's, it's worthwhile. Yeah. Um, do you, do you feel that my, I, the question I'm trying to ask it when you develop your culture of the gym, mm-hmm. Do you feel that it is sustainable no matter who the staff is? Or do you think it's the staff is just so important piece of that that it's impossible to maintain a culture if if a coach does come and go? I found it was very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, because different coaches, different backgrounds, different thoughts and feelings about certain things. Yeah. Um, have you read The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle? No. So he talks a lot about, um, you know, culture for like the SEAL teams, for example, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, how they have just continuously, and, it, you know, obviously all special forces units have this just high level of performance. Yeah. No matter who it is. Yeah. You know, obviously they've been around for decades. Yeah. And yet they have maintained this high level no matter who your officers are, no matter yeah. who your, your top enlisted guys are, yeah. no matter who your bottom enlisted guys are, whatever. Um, do you find it challenging to maintain the culture that you want, no matter who you have on staff, or do you feel like you have, have that nailed down to where you think that you can, you can kind of stay in that, in that zone, no matter yeah. who comes through your doors one day as a coach? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a great question. And, uh, Five years ago, three years ago, that question would have stopped me in my tracks and caused a lot of introspection. And I might have had a a response for you, but I would have been full of shit. Um, I I didn't know, right? Um, I didn't I didn't know how to how to hire based on culture. I didn't know how to um, train based on culture. I didn't know what I wanted, right? I didn't know who to look for or or what things are non-negotiables for us as we start to hire and look at people. And so, um, over the years, uh, you know, now I've, I've gotten better with dialing that in I've gotten better with what the communication process is going to be and how to ensure that the only people that are coming on staff are the people that are going to embody that culture. Um, and, and that mindset, you know, it's belief, um, and really, honestly, it's empathy. Um, you know, I think and you've probably experienced this before, and I think it happens a lot inside of 
any job, um, but training specifically is people love to hire based on credentials, right? They love to hire based on your degree, your internships, your X and Y and Z, right? Um, and so we'll use Brian as an example, right? Because Brian is somebody who on paper from a trainer perspective looks incredible, okay? He has great internships with uh, the Columbus crew and I think Notre Dame and all, and all these other people he's going now and he's getting his master's degree up at Ithaca College. And on paper, you're just like, oh, wow, like this guy is just a sports and condition or, you know, a strength and conditioning guy, mm -hmm. right? Um, but if I were to sit after class and pull people about why they liked coming to Brian's class, they'd say because he's goofy. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't take himself seriously. Because he cares about me. He mm -hmm. asks about me. He gives me hugs. He smiles when I say something. Right? He laughs with me, not mm -hmm. at me. Um, nothing to do with his internships or his knowledge. Right. And um, and I think that that's the mistake that um, a lot of people fall into. And and I think you know if we think about coaches as a whole, I think that that's you know across everything. I think that that's something that that even up to like NFL teams, professional sports, I think they run into issues with because they hire guys based on a resume mm -hmm. and they don't think about how is this guy going to impact our culture. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the thing now that I've really realized is, um, you know, over the years, the people that we've struggled with as employees and the people that we've had really good, just consistent success with as employees, the difference is just how they fit into the culture that I want to be about. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, now I feel super confident that our team will just continue to improve and get better and grow, which is exciting because, again, same things like I've taken into account now the fact that, like, I'm not just giving you a job and paying you $20 an hour to coach class anymore. Like, that's not what I'm going to be giving you. If you want to come on and be a part of our culture, you're going to work at this and it's going to be a full-time endeavor, which involves continuing education and all that stuff. Again, if I'm not going to hire based on credentials, that means you're going to have to work your ass off to learn what you learned in school, right? What other trainers are going to learn in school and internships and all this stuff that you don't have, right? right? I'm going to force that stuff on you from a continuing education perspective, mm -hmm. um, relying on the fact that I like the way that you are in a relationship with me mm -hmm. and I like the way that you are in a relationship with Maria and with my mom and with these eclectic groups of people, right? I like how you communicate with those people because you care about them when you talk to them and you take stock of what they're saying. And when you do that, that's what friendship's all about. Like that's, that's what it is, right? Yes, we do fitness, but I can't help you with fitness if I don't know about your life. Like if I can, if you don't let me in or we don't have a relationship, like I can't help you. I can help you a lot more if you trust what I'm saying is in your best interest. Right. Um, and so, um, so I think that that's, that's huge. And that wasn't where I was, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Right. You know, that's something that I put a lot of work into this year specifically is self-education on, on, basically being a better leader, um, you know, a better, um, owner, leader, however you want to look at that. Right. Yeah. Um, obviously we've been going for a little bit here and I want to be sensitive, uh, to the time. Yeah. Uh, cause honestly I gotta get home to some doggos. Uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll end with this question and, uh, hopefully it's not too broad, but it might be. 
Uh, Jeffrey Binnick has been doing this now for how many years? Yeah, coming up on 10, our 10th year. Yep. Is this, uh, is this what it is for, for your lifetime? Or do you have endeavors that you're thinking about outside of this that you'd like to dive into? Because I know for, you know, again, going back to, to a lot of the entrepreneurs that I've listened to, podcasts, read books, whatever, um, there seems to be the ones that dive into that one thing and that's what they do for the rest of their days. And yep. then there's some other ones that are like, yep, I've done that for a little while. Okay, I'm ready for the next thing. Yeah. And they yep. start something completely different. Yeah. Which one are you? Yeah, so I would say, uh, you know, the in, if you guys have followed my life, you probably have seen it. Um, you know, I think uh, I was on that journey up until, you know, last year. Um, you know, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sold that this was what I wanted to do or what I could do for forever, right. Mm-hmm. For the rest, for the rest of uh, my days for stuff. Um, so, you know, you look at law school, I had some other things and that was a, that was a pre friendship education plan. That mm-hmm. was what I had gone back to school for. Originally it was going to be a history, history teacher, but I wanted to get my law degree. Um, and I had some, some big aspirations with some of those kinds of things. Um, and then I was approached to run for, um, Congress, and I dove into that very briefly, and that was a pretty quick answer. That was, mm. that was just a big fat no. <laughs> I don't like fundraising. I don't like uh, I don't like networking, and so that's pretty much out. Um, so uh, you know, I've had a, a lot of um, you know different I don't know pressures, discussions, communications along those lines uh, over the last few years, and I think now, like I think thirty three, thirty four, I think is a good age uh, area to really start having a clearer picture, being wiser, I think, to, to understanding this is not only what I want to do, but this is also, this is how I'm going to do it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I think the the first question, I think, was answered as soon as I, I left law school um, was, um, you know, I would so much rather be just great at something that I love and just dive into that all the way, um, then force myself into something else um, for alternative reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, society pressures, family pressures, some different things like that. Mm-hmm. And my family's come a long way. I think at first, you know, when you first dive into opening a gym and doing that stuff, and you're 25, 26, 27, and you're fucking around with your friends it gets pretty easy to be like, yeah, but like, when are you actually seriously going to get a job? (laughs) And, you know, Tom's mom used to joke with them about that. It's still like till this day jokes with them about like, yeah, but when are you going to get a job? Right. (laughs) Right. And, uh, and so I think for, you know, for years that was sort of the pressure I got, maybe not necessarily directly from my parents. My mom has always very been, been super supportive of stuff. Um, but, um, but definitely from like some of our, our alternative, my aunts and uncles and things like that, who are a little bit more, more pressure with some of that stuff. Um, and you know, sometimes you, you just feel those pressures of, you know, well, society says I should accomplish more, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever the fuck that means. Mm -hmm. And in the back of my head forever, I've always really been anti, you know, what is it? Anti disestablishmentarianism, right? Mm -hmm. Like I've been very, um, you know, 
against the grain. Mm-hmm. Um, but then with this like little pull to like, uh, yeah, but like, you know, you should go and get your law degree or you should go and do something real like mainstream. Mm-hmm. And so for a while it just took me, you know, a meditation and, um, comfort in my team supporting me, my team being the current coaches at the gym, um, and my family and like those two people really supporting me and believing in, in what I do and, um, and how I do it, I think has, um, has really made me much more comfortable in, in my decision, which really, honestly, if I dig deep into my like soul, like that, it has always been the decision. Mm -hmm. I just haven't always necessarily, um, felt like it's been, um, I don't know. I don't want to say supported, but it hasn't always been, um, something that I felt like sure about for a while, you know? So now, um, you know, I mean, it's something where like, like, okay, if I want to do it and I want to be great at it and I want to be, um, I, I want to make a dent. Like I want to be, I want to be somebody who, um, you know, really can, can help make thousands of people's lives better. Like continue to help get hundreds of people into relationships where they find their significant other into meaningful, better relationships, with their family, with their kids, um, you know, get people off medications, get people to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just build relationships, be a place that, that, you know, I said it recently in a podcast, but this is it. Like, I want to be a place where, like, you show up and people ask how you're doing and how you've been. And they give you a hug and they care about you. Just because I think everything else in our generation is just going away from that. And so if I can continue to make places that fulfill the coaches, which means that the clients are are seeing success, are happy with, with what they're um, achieving and, um, and be a place that is financially not losing me money and is viable to be that type of a place, right? Um, then I'll create as many of them as I possibly can. Like, I think that's, that's it, um, is, um, the more friendships there are, um, the more positivity that there can be kind of in, in our community in Columbus, um, the more places that you know people smile when they see you and they walk in and they just greet you and care about you. Um, that's really what I want to be kind of you know, I guess if I have a legacy, like I think that that would be that would be it. Yeah. So Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool man. Thanks. This, this yeah, I appreciate awesome. it. Yeah. And uh, you know, thanks to thanks to you and G for uh, getting friendship up on uh, Yeah, for sure. And uh, I wouldn't have met my future wife had you not done that. Yeah, so. now I go take care of that those uh, dogs and <laughs> those the, dogs the family and, and, and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah.